How are we? Good. It is very, very good to be here with you all this morning. Uh, I'm excited to be back. Happy 2015. All right, good. Hope y'all had a, a, a good um, Christmas break and New Year's and all that stuff. Um, we had a fun time. We were up in the Detroit area, um, but it didn't snow. It was like unseasonably warm there, which for them warm is in the 40s, okay? But um, I actually really despise snow. That's like, I'm convinced that hell isn't flame. It's cold, all right? So I'm really, really averse to the cold. But if I'm only going to be up there once a year, I would like to see snow. Um, we didn't even see it. Um, however, um, being from Detroit, I figured I would pull this out today and all you cowboys haters I'll just leave this right here this will actually help with your sanctification today that's what I've heard all right so go Lions all right <laughs> for those of you who don't know the Lions Cowboys are playing in the playoffs and the Lions are gonna win all right um, so uh, we have a ton a ton a ton of text to go through today um, and so we're gonna dive right in um, if you have your Bibles go ahead and grab them we'll be in John chapter 6 we'll actually be there for the whole day uh, we're not gonna go into any other pieces of scripture so you can rest there John chapter 6 if you don't have a Bible there should be some under every second and third chair somewhere around you uh, please feel free to grab that and to take in um, use that uh, we want you to have the Bible so if you physically don't have a Bible we want you to take and keep that one um, that's our gift to you you can also follow along on your smartphone if you have one. Um, you can go underneath the Uversion app, underneath the live tab, type in the well Austin, you'll be able to follow along there. Um, if you don't have the Uversion app, uh, there is a link um, up here on the screen. You can take and paste that right into your browser um, and you'll be able to follow along in that way. Um, we don't have the, the teaching slides? None of the slides? Uh-oh. All right, I'm gonna do a little bit of narration for you, some of the points in the sermon today. The link is also in your bulletin. If you grab one of those, you can type that right in as well. Uh, you have notes, uh, polls, um, you can prayer requests, all types of different things like that on there. So um, that'll be good. Um, last week, we left off on Rapture Sunday, aka the Sunday where no one's at church because everybody's out of town. Um, we left off in the start of John chapter six, and we talked about uh, the different miracles that Jesus did. Um, so one of the things that he did was he fed 5,000 people with two fish and five loaves of bread. And then after feeding the 5,000, he walked on the water over to his disciples to meet them um, on in the middle of a lake. Um, and so we saw people were hungry. Jesus fed them. Um, and then he went and walked on water. Now, if you grew up in church, it's really, really easy to kind of read those stories and think, well, yeah, that's what Jesus does, right? He walks on water. He feeds people. Um, but this is kind of insane, is it not? Like these miracles are kind of extremely miraculous, if you will, right? Like if I just started walking off the stage, but I kind of stayed this level in the air and walked down amongst you, you would be tripping out, right? Like you'd probably think that there's something wrong with you or I'm possessed or something. Um, Jesus did some pretty crazy miracles, right? And it's really easy for us to uh, just read over them and to kind of not put a lot of emphasis on it. But the man walked on water and fed 5,000 people with two little fish and five loaves of bread. Okay, now the important part of those miracles is that he takes that analogy and carries that out through our story today. And so it was important to have context, but let your mind wonder a little bit if you're a little bit too used to that story. Like let it wonder about the majesty and the mystery of our God to be able to do something that significant. Like this isn't just a man we're dealing with, this is God in the flesh and there's a lot of depth into him. And we could just gloss over those stories, but I don't wanna do that today. And Jesus won't let us do that according to this text. So that's our context and he's gonna pick it right in um, as we go. So John chapter six, um, pick it up in verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea 
uh, saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Now notice in verse 25 um, that they call him rabbi. A rabbi just means a teacher. Um, But even though they call him teacher, they're about to completely reject Jesus's teachings that he's about to give them. Right? So they acknowledge him as teacher. They start off saying rabbi or teacher. Like, where'd you come from? Jesus is about to teach them things, but yet they are going to reject those teachings anyway. If there was a slide up, you'd be able to see this point. But um, the, the point here is, is that it's possible to say the right things about Jesus, but not to believe the right things about Jesus right? It's possible to say or to um, intellectually come to a conclusion that Jesus is somebody and you can verbally profess that, but it's not not the same as believing it in your heart, right? Like they profess Jesus as teacher, but they clearly don't believe it in their heart because they're about to completely reject all the teachings that Jesus is going to lay out for them. Jesus knows this, knows that they don't fully believe. And so then in verse 26, he responds to their unbelief and says, you're coming to me simply because you saw some something cool, right? Like, that's why you're coming to me, Jesus said. Like, I love how he didn't even ask their, or answer their question. They said, hey, how'd you get here? And he said, you're coming to me because you saw something cool, not because you think that I'm actually the Messiah or even actually the rabbi that can teach you, right? Jesus says, you saw me as Oprah, and that's why you're coming to me, right? Essentially, that's what he says, right? You know what I'm saying? You get a car, you get a car, you get a car, right? And they said, look, you saw that and you thought, well, that's really cool. I want to follow this person around. And so then that's why you're coming to me. I am your Oprah that's amongst you that can give you things that you want, right? Notice that um, Jesus didn't even say a sign or I mean a miracle, which is an important part. He said that there is actually a sign behind this miracle. So he said, you're coming to me because you saw a trick in your mind, but you're completely missing that. It wasn't just a miracle, but it was actually a sign and you're completely missing the sign, right? We talked about this several weeks ago in John chapter two, but what is a sign? A sign is something that points to something more significant than itself. You see out there in verse 25 or 26, right? They said, look, you're, you're, you're missing the sign behind it. A sign points to something more significant. So Jesus says that you should have realized that the actual feeding was something more than just me giving uh, uh, you bread and more than me just giving you something to eat. There was something a little bit more drastic, a little bit more in depth behind that and you're missing it, right? I'm pointing to something more than just your physical appetites and it's hard for you to get behind that. Now, Jesus could have been a little bit frustrated at this point because once again in the story, we see people are missing the spiritual and they're only focusing on the physical. We saw that over and over again, John 2, John 3, John 4. It would be really, really easy for Jesus to get frustrated if he were like me, right? Good thing he's a sinless savior. He's not like me. But for me, I'd be like, you knuckleheads, over and over and over again, I'm trying to show you something and you keep coming back to the physical aspect of it. But Jesus isn't like this. And so in verse 27, he switches over to the spiritual 
side of things, right? Just like he did in chapter two, when he turned water into wine and when he said he was the temple, just like he did with our buddy Nicodemus in chapter three, just like he did with the woman at the well, he takes a physical thing and turns it into a spiritual conversation because this is what Jesus cares about, right? Now, it's not that he doesn't care about the physical life at all, okay? It's not that he could care less about what happens to us physically. That's clearly not true because he just fed them in looking out for their physical needs. The disciples said, these people are hungry there's no food to eat anywhere around. We need to send them away. Jesus said, well, we can't do that, so we need to feed them, right? So he clearly cares about your physical, but recognize that he cares far more about your spiritual. For as Matthew 6 says, life consists of more than what we wear and what we eat. There's something a little bit more deep, a little bit more important than just our physical aspect. And so Jesus is taking the physical piece and he's gonna turn it into a spiritual um, um, seeking, a spiritual conversation. Now, the crowd actually realizes this and give a little bit of credit to the crowd because frequently they're pretty blind, right? But they actually realize this, so they ask him in verse 28. Let's keep reading. They said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? So they realize that he's talking about something significant, some eternal significance here, right? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. So notice they asked him a question and notice how Jesus answers. The crowd wanted, at least superficially, okay, at least to some extent, they wanted to be cool with God. They wanted to be on God's team. So they asked, what do we need to be doing to get into cahoots with God, right? Like, what do we need to be doing to be on the same team as God? What do we need to be doing to make sure that us and God are cool, okay, that we can go to heaven? And then Jesus said, what you need to do is you need to believe, right? Now, they asked, how do we do a work? And Jesus said, the work that you need to do is believe. Now, you may be asking yourself, and it would be a good question, how is belief a work, all right? How is it that belief is a work? And we're going to touch on that in a second. But uh, uh, this is a really important type of question because they even kind of get a hint at this, right? And they're kind of confused. What do you mean by that? And so if you don't know Jesus as Savior um, and, you know, you want to go to heaven when you die or you want to try to figure out who God is, you want meaning or, or significance in your life, you've probably asked a question similar to this, right? You probably asked God somewhat of the same type of question that these people asked Jesus out loud. You may not ask it out loud, but you probably think it frequently in your head. And even as Christians, um, oftentimes we think that more intimacy with God comes from our works that we give to God, right? So we think that if we work or if we do something for God, then that will bring us into a deeper intimacy. And so whether you're trying to figure out this Christianity thing, often what your mind wonders is, how do I become cool with God? And you start shifting toward what work do I need to do? And then even us as Christians, we do the same thing. We say, hey, what do I need to be doing to draw into a deeper relationship with God? And Jesus answers this question. He says, the work that you need to be doing is simply belief, right? So you may think, well, if I go to church more, 
maybe that will draw my intimacy with God. Maybe that will make me and God a little bit more cool, right? Or if I read the Bible more, or if I give more of my money, or if I give more of my time, or the famous one, if I'm just a good enough person, right? If I do enough good things, then that must mean that me and God will be cool, that I will get to heaven when we die, that I will draw in my relationship with God. But Jesus said that your work is actually very simply just to believe in him. That's the work that he wants you to do. Now, this is the best news ever, but it may be the hardest to accept because we live in a very works-based society, right? Like everything that we do is sort of based off of our works. All of our value, all of our significance is based on what we can do for other people. And it started all the way when we were kids, right? If we did the right things, we got our parents' favor. If we did the wrong things, then we got our parents' disfavor, right? It went into, as we went into school, grades gave us our significance or value, right? So if we got an A, we were really great. If we got an F, like I frequently did, then we were not great, right? If you uh, were a good athlete in high school or or you were the president in the National Honor Society, or whatever it may be, the things that you do frequently is what gives you your value. And so when we come into our relationship with God, we frequently bring forth the same mindset. What do I need to do to create value between me and God? What is it that I need to actually be doing that will help me and God become cool or have a greater relationship? And Jesus says, believe in me. This is what God wants from you, is to believe in me. Now, God doesn't need your good works. Good works are ultimately supposed to draw your faith closer toward God. But this is really, really hard, right? Because this is not the way that we operate in almost any other realm throughout our society. But true belief in Jesus is hard. And so the crowd is asking what we frequently think at times. Like, well, what do we need to do? What do you mean? Well, what are you going to show us then? Like, if you want us to simply believe in you, then you better be worth it, right? So they say, what sign are you going to show us that's going to validate that simple belief in you is how we grow in our relationship with God? Now, it's ironic there in verse 31 that they said Moses gave us uh, the manna from heaven because Jesus just fed these dudes, you know, all the bread, just fed them the day before. Okay, these are the same people. So they just saw a very similar type of miracle. And they said, well, what are you going to do that's very similar to that? How will you show us that belief in you is what will give us life, okay? Um, Let me ask you, it seems these people want to follow Jesus, right? It seems like they kind of want to know who God is. They're asking, they want to draw close. So why didn't Jesus just perform a greater miracle, right? Why didn't he say, okay, like feeding 5,000 was cool. Uh, You didn't see this, my disciples did though. I walked on water, that's pretty cool. Uh, you know what, let's, and then like grab the ground and throw it up and filet mignons come falling down from heaven, right? Like why didn't he do that? Isn't that better than manna? Yes, okay, now believe in me. Why didn't he do something like that? If he wants them to be saved, which we frequently say, Jesus longs for a relationship with us, he wants us to know him, then why didn't he give them what they were asking for right there? Why did he all of a sudden, which we're about to look at in a second, go into a really hard to understand analogy instead of just giving into it? Because if Jesus had given in to what they were asking for, he would have actually been affirming their false belief in him, right? If he had made filet mignons rain from heaven, right, he would have been giving in to a false belief in who Jesus was. They didn't believe in Jesus as the Messiah. They believed in him as the vending machine provider, right? Like you stick your couple quarters in, you do the right things, you press A6 and out comes what you want, right? You read your Bible enough, you press A6 and out comes marriage, right? You read your Bible enough, you press A7 and out comes a new car or whatever it is. That's the way that they're viewing Jesus. And so Jesus isn't going to affirm this false belief in him. 
And this is the same is true with us. We frequently think that when we do things, we then are in cahoots with God, we can ask what we want, and then we're confused as to why we don't get what we want. But in reality, we're not believing in Jesus, we're believing in a genie. And this isn't Aladdin, right? This is the God of the universe. And so Jesus is saying, I'm not going to allow you to believe in me as some magical genie that at any moment you can just ask and I'll say, okay, a greater miracle. Well, we don't really like that. Do it, one. Okay, another one, right? He says, no, no, no. If you're going to believe in me, you're going to actually believe in me as God. You're going to worship me for who I truly am. So point one, um, and you can write this down since it's now on the screen, um, but we often hunger spiritually for the wrong reason, okay? We often hunger. We want spiritual things, but we want them for the wrong reason. We hunger for what we can get, underline what, rather than who we can get, okay? We often hunger for what we can get rather than who we can get, which is Jesus. Jesus frequently is just a spiritual vending machine to us. We say, God, prove that you're real, right? Or prove that you're good or prove that you have my best interest in mind. I'm suffering right now. So if I come to you, prove to me, and then I'll give myself over to you. But Jesus isn't going to do that because he's God worthy to be worshiped, not a genie that we rub and get what we want from, right? Um, And so he'd be uh, 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 accentuating a false view about himself if he continually gave in to these types of desires. And so Jesus showed them a very similar miracle to what they saw in the wilderness and then said, I am the greater Moses. The greater Moses is amongst you. And if you believe in me, then you'll have life. And they had a really hard time with that, right? And so um, y'all tracking with that? Right? You following that? Okay. So this is why Jesus in verse 32 and 34 is telling them this. He tells them that the bread in the wilderness that Moses uh, fed the Israelites wasn't that great. Right? Like, yes, it was a miracle. But in reality, that bread was actually just a sign to point to something greater, mainly himself. Like when the, when the Israelites ate the manna in the wilderness, they should have seen there's something more significant than the, just this bread. Jesus comes along later and says, I am the greater significance. I am the true manna. I am actually the bread of life. This was meant to point them to eternal life. Like in chapter, verse 34, just like Nicodemus, just like the woman at the well, Jesus is speaking spiritually, but then they start to miss the point because they can only focus on the here and now right? They can only focus on the physical. They can't look past to see the spiritual. And how often do we long to experience eternal life personally, but we look in the wrong places? Like, doesn't that happen to you frequently? I know it does to me all the time, right? Like, I long to experience true life, but I'm looking for true life in the wrong places. So we think that getting that new job, that's what will be eternal life for us, right? Like, if we finally get that job, we've been putting in applications, we went to school, we're $60,000 in debt, right? We want this new job, and then if we finally get it, that will truly bring us life, when in reality, that is not life in and of itself. It's like manna in the wilderness. A good thing, praise the Lord, he gives us good things, but that's supposed to point us to something greater. Marriage, we talk about this all the time, is not an end in and of itself. Marriage is meant to draw us closer in our relationship with Jesus. It's meant to point us to a greater truth, right? Um, maybe it's food and clothing, or maybe it's a new car, or maybe it's the Christmas present that you really, really wanted, you got, and you're probably already bored with it, and it's only January 5th, right? It's 10 days later, you're already bored with it, but you thought, if I get this, I'll get a little bit of life, right? And in reality, that thing wasn't life in and of itself. And so Jesus is saying the same thing here. That's why in verse 33, he says the physical things, right? They don't impart life. They just sustain life. Don't miss that, okay? Physical things do not impart life to you. They just sustain it, 
Okay, and Jesus is saying, I come, I'm the true manna, the manna that Moses gave, even the bread yesterday, yeah, that definitely sustains your life, but it did not impart life, right? Manna is food for the body, but Jesus is food for the soul. And Jesus says, I want to come and give you true food. I want to give you true life. I want to fill you in the way that you're truly hungering for. And so that's why I'm going to walk into this with them, right? Belief in Jesus, having an intimate, thriving relationship with him is where life is truly found. Let's keep reading, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So please note a couple of things here. Notice that in verse 35, Jesus says that he gives himself to you. Do you see that there in verse 35? He says, I am the bread of life and I want to come and give you life. That means he is giving himself to you. This ought to bring you into eternal worship that a perfect sinless savior would redeem broken people like you and me, right? That we are hungry, we are starving and Jesus comes and gives us himself. He gives us life. Jesus longs for us to have him. So he's not a God that's distant or a God that's trying to hide from us. He's a God that's very present. He says, I want to give myself over to you. Not a false image of me, right? Not a genie image of me, right? But the true me, I want to give myself to you that you may have life. And so Jesus is trying. He's the bread that is offered to us all. Notice also in verse 37, and please highlight and underline and circle and fall in love with this promise there in verse 37, okay? If God has called you, you will come to Jesus, If God has called you, you will come to Jesus. Maybe that's why some of you who are still kind of wrestling with Christianity, you're trying to figure this out. Maybe that's why you're in church today, right? Maybe that's why you've been in church for the past 10 weeks, trying to figure this God out. Maybe God is wrestling in your heart, drawing you toward himself, longing for you to know him, working in your heart, right? Like maybe God is nudging you, beginning to call you. I mean, why else would he put that Christian that you work with in your life, right? Or why else would he put that neighbor who happened to be an elder in the church or the neighbor who happened to be really involved and they kept kind of trying to pull you in? Like, why else would he put them in your life, right? Or why else would you feel that nudge to go type in churches, right? Maybe that's my New Year's resolution. I'll go to church, right? What if that's God drawing you toward himself? See, God longs for us to have a relationship with him. And in verse 37 there, it says that if God has called you, he will bring you into a relationship with himself. That's a very, very, very beautiful thing. And know that if you're saved, the God of the universe has chosen you, right? Like the God of the universe has chosen you, broken, right, messed up people with all of our hiccups. God has chosen us to draw us into a relationship with him. This should move our hearts to worship like nothing else. Right? There was nothing good in us to have been chosen, yet God chose us anyway, gave himself up to us, drew us into relationship with him, and then look at that, will never cast us out. Right? We're never going to be lost by God. God will always keep us. He will keep us in the fold. He will keep us in that relationship with him. You or I cannot be wicked enough to usurp God's grace. And sometimes we think that, don't we? We think that if we do enough bad things, then we'll no longer have the greatest relationship with God. Your wickedness is not greater than God's righteousness. Your sin is not greater than God's grace, right? Your shortcomings are not greater than God's mercy. You cannot usurp God's great power for you. So if he has chosen you, then he has called, and he has called you, then you will know him and he will keep you in that relationship with him and work in you so that you may know him more and more and more. 
This is a very beautiful, beautiful thing. Thank you, Jesus, for that. Amen? Keep reading, verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Same promise he just gave in a different light, right? Verse 40. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Highlight and fall in love with verse 40 as well. This is a very beautiful promise. God wants you. Do you see that there in that verse? So not only has God called you, not only will God keep you if he has called you, but the God of the universe actually wants you. Listen to that. Let your soul hear that for a second, okay? Because we lie to ourselves all the time and Satan lies to us and tells us that God wants nothing to do with us or it's almost like we're a side project, right? Like we're like the side chick, you know? We're like, oh, God doesn't really, he's just kind of flirting with us over here, but in reality, he's doing something else. No, that's not true. We are God's treasure, Scripture says, right? God wants us. He longs for a relationship with you and with me, even through our brokenness, even through our shortcomings. The perfect, awesome, powerful, just, righteous, holy, merciful, loving, compassionate, gracious God longs for a relationship with you. Let your soul hear that. Because nothing else tells us that truth. Everything else is about our merit. What can we do in order to gain affection? God says, I'm just going to choose you because I love you and I'm going to give myself to you and I want you to know that I long for you despite our brokenness, despite our not being able to be good enough, right? The God of the universe is drawing us in. God's will is that all who look to Jesus will be saved. Come on now. How great of a truth is that? that everybody who looks to Jesus will be saved. Not once you look to Jesus, then jump through 32 hoops. Not once you look to Jesus and then learn to fly or something crazy, because that's what it should be, right? It should be impossible for us, but Jesus, or God says, once you look to my son, Jesus says, once you look to me, as the Father has chosen you, you will come to me, right? That's it, period. Faith, belief, belief in me draws you into a relationship with God. Not works, but faith, belief in me draws you in, right? God wants you. His will is for you, okay? I'm about to get Pentecostal up in here. God wants you and me, right? Come on now. That should draw your heart toward worship. If it doesn't, then you might want to check your heart. Why is your heart dull to that beautiful truth? What is your heart actually believing rather than that beautiful truth, right? How is your heart trying to block that truth out? God longs for you and me. Um, I was thinking about this this week because I really don't fully believe this, you know, like it's easy for me to completely miss this. So I was thinking about Micaiah, my daughter. She is 15, about 16 months old in between 15 and 16 months. And she's already in her terrible two somehow, okay? I'm not really sure how, all right? But she has learned to throw fits, okay? And so our perfect little cute daughter is no longer perfect and cute um, at times. She's really cute still. But when she's throwing fits, it's really hard to be like, what are you doing? Um, but she'll like throw her head back, right? She'll like smack her head on the desk because she's like wailing because I said, no, you can't have this cake. No! You know, she like throws herself back, hits her head on the ground, right? We're trying to put her in her car seat. Micaiah, do you want a spanking? Because she like won't sit down. She's just standing up and crying and like sweating and it's really crazy. So she's starting to throw fits, right? At that moment, okay, through her shortcoming, because that is, let's be honest, sin, right? She's being rebellious. I don't know why, but she's saying, I don't want to do this. So I'm not going to listen to you, right? So she's being rebellious. At that moment, what is my feeling? What is my heart? What is my thought toward her? Is it, you know what, girl? We're done. Move out of the house. You're on your own now, <laughs> right? 
go ahead, go fend for yourself. Then we'll see how much you really need me, right? Is that what my heart is? Or do I try to love her, try to explain to her, try to be gentle with her, try to discipline her, try to do what it takes that she would see that I love her and I have her good for her. I have her good in mind. It's the latter, right? I hope it's not the former. That thought may cross my mind a little bit because I am sinful, okay? But in reality, I act out the latter, okay? If I, a wicked father, know how to give good gifts to my children, then how much more God, the perfect father, knows how to give you the gifts that you deserve, right? He gives himself to you if he has called and chosen you. God longs for you. He doesn't just cast you out when you throw fits. He tries to draw you in. That's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful promise that for some reason, the God of the universe would desire you and I when we, all we do is act like Micaiah throwing fits, right? Maybe once we smile, every once in a while, right? Besides that, we're usually pretty messed up people. Yet and still God calls us, yet and still God tries to draw us in. Let's keep reading, verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent him or who sent me draws him. He's going to say this, by the way, like six times throughout this passage. God draws, God draws, God draws. You cannot come unless God draws. He keeps reiterating this point, right? And I will raise him up on the last day. So notice that people were focusing on the wrong thing. They were tripping over themselves because Jesus said that he was from heaven. Right? That's why they were kind of like, what's going on? No, we know this man. How is he from heaven? Completely missing the point that he said he can raise them up on the last day. They were completely missing that. And so Jesus didn't allow their minds to trail there. Okay, He didn't allow their minds to wander off and say, well, wait a minute. Don't we know Joseph? Don't we? But he tries to reshift onto the right point and say, no, no, no. If you believe in me, I can actually raise you up on the last day. If you believe in me, you will resurrect and you will have eternal life. So Jesus doesn't start going off into no man's land, right? Trying to explain the virgin birth. He says, what I want you to get right now is eternal life. That if you believe in me, you'll resurrect. Keep reading. Verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it. What does that say? And not die. And not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So can I just paraphrase this section and explain point two? Jesus says, the scriptures say that God's going to come speak to you. That's me, right? I am God, Jesus says. And I am coming and speaking to you. And I am trying to tell you how you enter into a relationship with God. How you get eternal life. How you enter into that covenant with God where you will live forever. And that's if you believe in me. If you believe in me, you have eternal life, right? I am the true bread, okay? And so point number two, if you're taking notes or writing this down, is that if we hunger for Jesus, we'll be forever satisfied. If we hunger for Jesus will be forever satisfied. See, point one is wrong to hunger for what we can get. We need to rather for who or for a somebody. We need to hunger for a somebody. And point number two is that if we hunger for Jesus, we'll be satisfied. 
That's what Jesus is saying here, right? If you hunger after me, you will be forever satisfied and circle forever because that's a true promise. Ever and ever and ever, you will live forever with God, satisfied in God, in his son, in Christ, right? But this is hard, right? Like if we're honest, this is hard to think about. Like, will you really be forever satisfied in Christ? Is it really true that everything else physical only sustains your life, but Jesus can actually come and impart life into you? Is it true that Jesus is truly that valuable, right? Like if we eat of him, will we be forever full? Is he the filet mignon that our souls desire, right? Like is he what our souls crave for? Keep reading verse 52 because he's going to answer that. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Completely missing the point once again, right? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, he's about to just nail right home into the point. Unless you eat of the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living father sent me and I live because of the father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is... This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that your fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Jesus is not saying here that we have to literally eat of him to be saved, okay? Or else what he said in verse 35 and verse 47 and other places is a lie. He'd be contradicting himself using the same sentence, right? Jesus is a pretty smart guy. He's not going to contradict himself two seconds after he said something. Right? And so what's going on here? Jesus is simply trying to carry this analogy to the deepest possible level. They didn't get the feeding, right? The feeding was supposed to point them to Jesus, but they saw the miracle and said, we want more food. So they didn't get the feeding. So he goes into a little bit deeper analogy. No, I am the bread of life. If you believe in me, you'll be saved. They didn't get that. So then he said, look, you need to eat of me. You need to be so fully satisfied with me. I need to be living inside of your souls. And if I'm not, you don't have life. And so Jesus is simply carrying this to the deepest possible level. He wants our bellies, our souls to be filled up in him, right? To be completely satisfied with who Christ is. One also can't read this though and not think about communion, which is not salvific in and of itself, but it does point us to where salvation is found in Christ, right? One can't read this and just completely negate communion. And so the reason that we take communion is to remember that Jesus gave his body up for us, right? And spilled out his blood so that we might be saved. When we tear off the bread, like we do in church, it should actually remind us that Jesus, God in flesh, tore his body for us that we may have life in him. And when we dip it in the juice or the wine, right? And we eat of it, it should remind us that his blood was spilled so that we can have life in him. Right? And so while communion is not salvific, right? we don't have to have communion to be saved, it does point to salvation. Right? And it actually kind of points really well to this analogy that we have to be filled up with Christ in order to truly have life. We have to believe in him. Okay? So belief in Jesus is what draws you to God. The gospel actually, what Jesus and God wants us to believe, what he's trying to say through this passage and over and over and over and over again in the book of John and throughout all of scripture really, is that the way our souls can be forever full and forever satisfied is by recognizing we're not good enough. Right? We are not good enough. They start off in saying, what good works do we need to do to be in cahoots with God? Right? How do we need to act? How do we need to do? What do we need to say in order to get us into a relationship with God? And Jesus says, you, your work is that you need to believe in me. The reason that it's a work is because belief is hard. 
right? We got to believe what we cannot see. Yet it is true that once we believe, we are fully satisfied in him. That's a hard thing to grapple with, right? But it's true. The gospel is that we are not good enough, but God in his love for us sent his son and that whoever believes in him will be saved. What saved means is that you'll be exiting out of death, exiting out of darkness into eternal life, into the light of Christ. You now have a relationship with God, right? And so even in the sense of heaven and hell, which we often think about in terms of salvation, that's not the reward, skipping hell and getting into heaven. The reward is Jesus, <laughs> Jesus is so fully satisfying and he's even better than heaven. That on belief on Jesus, getting to know him, that's where true life is found. And so Jesus doesn't say, if you believe in me, you'll get to heaven. He says, if you believe in me, you'll get me. That is eternal life. I am the bread and when you eat of me, you will be fully satisfied in me, right? The gospel is that we cannot do it by ourselves, but God sent his son and by belief in him, we can be saved. We can be washed clean, enter into a relationship with God. This is the good news message. Verse 60, let's read the rest of this passage, actually. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? That word listen doesn't mean like who can hear it. It says who can actually obey it, okay? Who can follow this? Who can, this is a harsh saying is what they're saying, right? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the son of man ascending to where he was before? It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. In other words, you keep thinking about this from a physical standpoint. I want you to see this in a spiritual manner. That's why I keep turning these physical things, they're signs. I show you what they're pointing toward. These physical things are pointing toward a spiritual reality. So when you think about this in the flesh, it's of no help. You need to think about it in the spirit, right? The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. I also think it's so ironic that verse is John 666. You ever notice that? Like, you know, whoever first put the, the, the numbers in the Bible was like, uh, make that John 666, right? Um, so, verse 67, Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know you that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. Jesus begins this section with, I know this is hard right? Like he acknowledges that this is a hard thing because it is hard, right? Like we think that, oh, just believe, just believe. That's really hard to do because everything in us is set up to work. And Jesus says, no, 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 just believe, just believe. That's what gives you life, right? You can't rely on your earthly bellies. You need to dig into your spiritual soul and see what that's craving. Don't think about this just in the physical. Dig into what your soul is craving for, you know, I mean, think about it on a logical level, right? Like you guys have all tasted things from a spiritual or from a physical standpoint. You've gotten a job, you've entered into a relationship, right? You're now married, you got the kid that you wanted, you got the car, you got the present, whatever it may be. And does that ever fully forever satisfy? No, it doesn't. And so Jesus is saying, skip past the physical, get out of your physical bellies, get into your soul, your soul's belly. And what is it craving for? 
It's craving me, right? That's hard to believe. That's hard to come to terms with, but you need to do that, he's saying. You have to dig in, right? Jesus tells him in verse 62 that there's something even harder to believe. It's the fact that he is from the Father, that he's actually God. And so Jesus doesn't hide the fact that Christianity is kind of hard to believe and even follow sometimes, right? Like sometimes we act like, oh, just believe, but that's a hard thing. That's a hard thing. So Jesus acknowledges that, but he says, this is what it takes if you want to have life, if you want to enter into an eternal relationship with me. What he is saying that is if you allow the physical to be a barrier, you'll never understand the truth, right? You'll never understand the truth. If we stick to the physical, we'll forever miss it. Just like Nicodemus, just like the woman at the well, just like you and I, when we think that marriage or money or beauty or football, right? Go Lions or jobs, or friendships, or reading the Bible, or whatever it is, we think that those things give us life in and of themselves, we're missing the point. It's actually Jesus. And all those things are supposed to be arrows that point us back to his son over and over and over again, right? Well, we frequently, we miss the Messiah for the Messiah's creation, right? The Messiah created all of this for our good, for our joy, but also as a point to an arrow to him, and we frequently, we miss it. And we worship the creation rather than the creator, right? So point number three is that true belief is hard. You must give up other hungers in order to be filled in him. You have to give up other hungers in order to be filled in Jesus. If you allow your physical belly to continue to lead you spiritually, you're never going to have the relationship with Jesus that your soul craves. You need to see it in a spiritual light, right? These disciples, they weren't really willing to give that up. And so they missed life, right? Because Luke 9, if you save your life, you'll lose it. And so many of us are trying to save our lives. We're trying to cling to these physical things. And Jesus says, you have to give that up if you're going to want to truly find life in me, right? Look at verse 65. He says, it's impossible to do this on human terms, right? You have to think about this from a spiritual standpoint. And so maybe God, even right now, is trying to do that work in some of you. Like maybe even right now, he's trying to stir up an affection. He's trying to challenge you to see who he is. Because that's all Jesus is doing here is he's saying, I know this is hard, but I need to challenge you in this. Because if I don't, you'll keep believing in me as genie rather than believing in me as God. And so he challenges and a lot of people leave him, right? I think it's so interesting that then he turns to his disciples and say, are you going to leave too? That's a challenge to them, right? Like you would think that after all the disciples left Jesus, he would be like, whew, At least these 12 are here, right? Come on, let's go do these works. He says, hey, are you going to go too? Simon Peter, like he always does, opens his mouth and says something. And it sounds really, really good, but he actually spoke falsely. He says, we have come to believe in you. And Jesus said, no, 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 I chose you. You didn't do anything. I chose you and Simon, while you're speaking for the whole group, one of you is a Satan, right? (laughs) Judas, your friend, is about to betray me at some point, okay? So Jesus is even challenging them, his very close disciples. Why does Jesus put hardship in our life sometimes? Why does he not give us the physical things that we're longing for? Why does, because he's challenging us to draw into our faith, to draw into our belief in him, because that's where he knows life is. He knows that life is in belief in him, in faith in him, right? And the joy and the mystery that it is to know Christ, the wonder that it is, the love that our soul feels, that's what he wants. Jesus really is for your good. He really is for your utmost good. He just knows that your utmost good is him. And so he won't give you secondary things if it's gonna replace him. He's gonna try to show himself to you over and over and over and over again. And so maybe some of you have been wrestling with Christ for a while. You've been trying to figure out, you've been trying to put the right answers together. But oftentimes we rely on the physical when we do that. 
you have to skip over the physical and believe in the spiritual, right? That's hard. I know it is. It sounds crazy even saying that. I want to give like a loophole, but there isn't any, right? Belief in Christ is what will give you eternal life. And so I would challenge you, if you don't know Jesus, get to know him. Begin to believe in him. Begin to believe in the work that he did for your life. His death can bring you life if you believe in him as God. And if you're a Christian, man, I would challenge you with the exact same truth. The physical things that we so often desire, that we so often try to place our hopes, place our joy on, they won't give us eternal life. Only Christ can. He can give us life to the fullest. And so through belief in him, that's where we find it. And so as we enter into this new year, I'm really excited about 2015. I really am. I think it could be a great, great, great year for our church. I think it could be a great year for us. Try to figure out what does God want you to do to draw you into a relationship with him, right? One thing that I really encourage you to do is read through the Bible in a year with us, right? We talked about it a couple weeks ago. We know the Bible doesn't give life in and of itself, but it points to the person who does over and over and over again. And so go through the Bible in a year with us, right? Challenge each other, like talk to each other about it. Don't just read it, but start talking to people. Hey, what is God showing you about himself? How is he challenging you? What is he telling you to give up or to add into your life that you may know him more, right? Go through the how to read the Bible class. If you've never done that, go through that and try to figure out how do I read through scripture well to point me to Jesus over and over again, right? I don't know what it is for you this new year, but I would encourage you as you move through, figure out what is God doing to trying to draw you into a relationship with himself? Because this is where life is. Your souls can be forever full on the bread of life and he's given himself to you. That's Jesus. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you, God, that really one of the hardest things, just simple belief, is also one of the simplest things because you long for us to know you. God, that's hard. I so often want to work for my intimacy with you. God, I think that discipling more men or teaching a really good sermon, that's what will draw me into intimacy with you. In reality, that's not what it is, Jesus. Belief in you, faith in you, coming to you as God. That's how I get to know you, God. That's how we get to know you. And so God, would you burn away all the lesser idols in our life? God, the things that we so frequently uh, use to try to fill us, to try to give us life, rid those from our lives, God. Give us yourself, Jesus. God, I pray that there wouldn't be anything else that gets in the way, God, that any other barrier that we try to cling to, let us find life in you and in you alone, Jesus. Throughout this year, throughout 2015, would it be a year that when we look back 10, 15, 20 years from now, we can look back at this year and say, that's the year where I really chased after Jesus and I really, really grew in him. God, we can grow this church to a thousand and be planting churches and sending out missionaries. We could uh, be individually in our lives, getting the jobs, the marriages, the, the children, whatever we want. But if we don't have you, all of it's pointless, God. And so as we try to advance the kingdom, let us remember that life in you is where life is truly found, God. That in you, belief in you is where we truly have life. God, in your mercy and in your grace, would you help us to fall more in love with you, Jesus? Father, thank you for choosing us. Despite our weaknesses and brokenness and failures, thank you for calling us. Thank you that once we're sons and daughters, we will forever be sons and daughters. Thank you for giving yourself, Jesus. God, I pray blessing over these people that they would know you. Help us to know you, God, in your precious name. Amen.